You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, as uh, Jake introduced me earlier, I'm, uh, I'm his father and uh, glad to be here with you guys. It's a real pleasure. And uh, man, I'm, I love this building. A lot of history in this building, a lot of impact in the city of Austin. You guys are continuing on. And as he said, I work with our uh, Association of Hill Country Churches. And just a quick word on that, we exist to catalyze a movement of healthy reproducing churches that saturate the city of Austin with gospel conversations. And that really describes what you guys are all about. I love this idea of in Austin as it is in heaven, you guys taking responsibility for this area of Austin and get the gospel out to uh, people that you live with and work with and live around and play around. You know, that, that's awesome. So anyway, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. And I want to invite you just to join me in a word of prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to your word now, we invite your spirit to continue to just work within our heart, give us insight and understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what you want to say to us today. And that, God, we just acknowledge our need for you to uh, speak to us through your word. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1953, a young boy named Stanley Willoughby, all of eight years old, Portland, Oregon, true story, walked out of his home one day and looking for something to do. He looked to his left, and then he looked to his right, and a couple of yards down, he could see this huge three-ton steamroller repairing the street. And like a, young, uh, a lot of young boys, he was immediately uh, captivated by that and uh, wanted to get a closer look. And so he started making his way closer uh, to the steamroller. And uh, as you, you can imagine, he thought, well, the closer he got, the more he could experience just this massive piece of machinery. And all of a sudden, he finds himself walking directly behind the steamroller. And, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of climbing over some of the asphalt and, 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 and following this thing. And all of a sudden, the driver puts the thing in reverse, not knowing that Stanley's behind him. He puts it in reverse, and sure enough, the thing passes right over the lower half of Stanley Willoughby's body. When he realized what he had done, he jumps down, and he thinks he's going to find the lifeless body of this little boy. Instead, he finds Stanley Willoughby comfortably pressed in this warm, soft bed of asphalt, completely unhurt. I told that story once when I was at Dallas Seminary, and uh, the missions, one of the missions professors said, you know, I know Stanley Willoughby. That, that, that's not only a true story, but I know him. He's a missionary somewhere in Asia. And uh, I couldn't believe it. But anyway, true story. And the reason why I tell that story is I believe that all of us from time to time find ourselves under the steamroller. It's the idea of pressure, of stress, of the weight of life from time to time that does feel like the steamroller is rolling right over us. 
And you know what it feels like. It can be anything from financial pressure. It, it can be, you know, like, how are we going to pay the bills? Or what about the future? Are we going to be able to survive the future? Like, what, what's going to happen? It can be relational stress. What's going on in your marriage? Oftentimes, what's going on with your kids? And you find yourself at bed uh, each night playing the what-if game. Well, what if this? What if this? And worry and stress and the weight and pressure of life just rolls over you. It can be the stress of health. You know, if you've ever had a huge health challenge, uh, there's been a diagnosis. And though there may be a treatment plan, you're wondering, will it work? Am I going to survive that? I know what the steamroller feels like. I remember when I was in graduate school, when I was in seminary, I was um, the father of three small kids. And uh, Kathy and I were trying to keep our family together. I was going to grad school full time. I was working evenings at UPS. And in the midst of all of that, I felt the steamroller more than I ever had my entire life. You know, I was trying to keep up academically. You know, you're, you're memorizing Greek paradigms. You're trying to learn Hebrew grammar. Uh, at the same time, I was working for UPS as a sorter. I was responsible to learn every zip code in the state of Texas and the first three numbers of the zip code of every state in the United States. And then you were, um, you know, fed these packages by someone in a truck trying to make you beg to turn off the conveyor belt. They're just putting these packages on, and you're sorting them to one of 16 different color-coded belts. And every Friday, you took a test to see how you could do in memorizing this while you're memorizing all these other things. And I felt the, the academic stress. I felt professional stress, trying to raise a small family, trying to keep up with everything. Kaylee, our daughter, was born with an undeveloped hip socket. There was surgery, there were body casts. I remember when I discovered the psalm that we're going to look at today, how God opened my eyes to how to survive stress. Uh, what, what secrets there were in his word. And I remember it, it had immediate impact on me. And I know it will with you too. Harvard Business Review tells us that 60 to 70% of all doctor visits are really stress-related. You guys know what it is. You know what the steamroller is. Some of you right now feel like you're finding yourself right behind a steamroller that's in reverse about to roll over you. And God's got really great, great uh, truth for us to look at today. I want to invite you to look with me at Psalm 61. Psalm 61, and here we look at a man 3,000 years ago who um, uh, uh, had his own steamroller that he worked with. Uh, David was a king. Uh, David had uh, responsibilities for the people of God. In fact, uh, in a moment when I read through this psalm, you'll hear him say, for you, O Lord, have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You've given me the heritage, that is, you've given me the responsibility, the stewardship of leading your people has fallen on me. And David felt the stress of leading the people of God. There were military threats. 
Uh, there were conspiracies. Uh, there were all kinds of different uh, 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 steamrollers, if you will, that David had to contend with. And he writes this psalm. And I pray that at the end of our message today, that you will find what he found, the secrets of surviving success. So Psalm 61, I want to um, just read through the passage. It's really just eight verses. And as I read it, would you pay attention to what I would suggest are three movements in the psalm. Uh, There is uh, David's crisis. We see kind of that portrayed. And then the second movement I just titled uh, David's Comfort. And we're looking forward to that. And then finally, uh, David's confidence about continuing on despite the steamrollers in his life. Uh, Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So here in this great passage, this great psalm, uh, we find David's David's journey, and we're going to journey along with him. And first I said the movement begins with David's crisis. We see abundant evidence, don't we? Look again. Hear my cry. Uh, You know, most of the time when we cry, it's not out of joy. It's out of pain, isn't it? Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Uh, We see David feel some despair. There's something up with the man. So much that he cries out to God. He pleads with him to listen to his prayer. He uh, reflects this distance that he feels from God. From the ends of the earth, I call out to you. Now, uh, that could be physical distance that David felt from the tabernacle, the meeting place with God. He could have been away. We're not real sure the circumstances. But I believe this is uh, after David is king. And for whatever reason, whether physically, certainly emotionally, he feels distance from God. Now, my friends, isn't it so true that when we find ourselves in times of crisis, when we find ourselves under the steamroller, you at times think, God, where are you? Like, why, why is this happening to me? And we feel like because of the the trial that we're going through, because of the pressure that we're under, that we're far away from God. And he cries out to God. And then in uh, his prayer, he says this, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, I just absolutely love this verse. And I can't tell you how many times over the course of my life, I've prayed, God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, the rock, obviously, is a metaphor for God himself. 
And he says, God, I need you. Some commentators think that the rock that David had in mind was, uh, in fact, let me show you a picture of it. Uh, this is a, a huge rock in the Judean desert. Uh, it, it's massive in size. In fact, uh, 700 years later, uh, uh, King Herod would build a fortress in the, on the top. Uh, uh, in the first century, when the uh, Romans uh, uh, took the, uh, destroyed Jerusalem again and destroyed the temple again, uh, uh, many Jews escaped here, what, what we often call a Masada. But at the time of David, it was just this massive mount. And some thought that when he said, lead me to a rock higher than I, the thing that closest to his image of God was this mount. One slide, uh, Kathy and I were up there and just took a, a picture looking down. You see the height of this thing. This, this, this rock, you know, it's massive in strength and stability, strong power of God. And David says, I am not strong enough to withstand the steamroller, and I need a rock higher than I. I just love that. In fact, I would suggest to you the first thing is that uh, to survive stress, we must rely on the power of God. To survive stress, we must rely on the power of God, the power of God, our rock, our stability, our strength. Now, Chevrolet trucks, uh, Chevrolet Silverado, other trucks, for the longest time have had a campaign like a rock, uh, taken from an old Bob Seger song, Like a Rock. And, uh, you know, they, they celebrate this, this idea. Now, I'm a Ford man myself. I, I'm pretty sure that Jesus would drive an F-150 if he was here. But all my friends who drive Silverados who uh, aren't, have, have not progressed quite as far in, in their sanctification, uh, they, uh, they tell me, yeah, Chevrolet trucks, man, I like a rock. In fact, they say, you know, remember a couple of years ago back in March of 22, the tornadoes ripped through kind of east of Austin, and they kind of ripped through Elgin. Do you remember the tornado that the young man was driving home, having interviewed at Whataburger for a job? He's making his way home. Tornado hits his Silverado, flips it over, uh, and then uh, a second or two later, flips it back over, right side up, and young man keeps driving his truck. And my, my friend said, yeah, like a rock. I said, well, in a Ford, it would have never flipped over. They didn't buy that either. Uh, the song, if any of you remember, actually tells the story of a man late in life where he's looking back in his younger years and he says, man, I was, I was lean and strong. I was solid everywhere like a rock. And he talked about his self-sufficiency and self-strength. But then the song turns toward the end where now he reflects on life, no longer a rock. And I wonder if we've all woken up to the fact that we're not a rock. That we really cannot in our own strength, in our own strength withstand 
the incredible pressure we feel from time to time, the steamroller. David says, you survive stress by relying on the power of God. That's what we have to do. When we come back to the passage, that's not all. He's going to actually turn from expressing this prayer. And by the way, if you want to you know, test, if you want to assess how much you rely on the power of God, just look at your prayer life. The person who recognizes how much they need the power of God, the strength of God to intervene, that's a person who prays regularly and brings all, All this language of crying out to God, hear my prayer, listen to my plea. When he says, my heart grows faint within me. My friends, if that doesn't drive you into prayer, then you're really not relying on the rock who is God. But he continues, we pick up with verse three again. And here we move from the crisis to the comfort that David has experienced. He says, for you have been my refuge. Now, notice he's looking to the past, isn't he? He's thinking, okay, God, I'm in this present crisis. But now when I look to the past, I remember that you have been my refuge, my hiding place, place of protection, a strong tower against the enemy. And then he prays again, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, I love this part of the psalm because he he basically looks to the past and a lot of the present crisis, and he remembers how God has been a refuge for him. You remember when uh, David uh, tells King Saul that he'll take on Goliath. And uh, Goliath is, is expressing surprise and dismay. And David says, listen, I faced the bear, I faced the lion as a shepherd, and God was with me, and he'll be with me with this Philistine who dares to taunt the armies of the living God. And uh, rejecting the armor of Saul, he goes out and faces Goliath. Uh, there were many, many times that David faced the steamroller in many ways. And he testifies how God had been his warm, soft bed of asphalt, hiding in him, his high rock. He says, you've been my refuge, my strong tower. And then he he says now, uh, in, in a prayer again, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, I just love this imagery. If you'll notice, there's a great uh, progression. I'm going to trip up here. Uh, There's a progression in the metaphors. Do you see that? Oh, my goodness. Do not miss this. Uh, David talks about God as a high tower. Uh, I mean, as a high rock. And then a strong tower. And then what does he say? Let me dwell in the shelter. Let me take refuge in the shelter or in your tent forever. So he comes into the tent, and then finally, under the shelter of your wings. Do you see that progression of intimacy? Do you see that progression of intimacy with God? David says, oh, man. God, not only have you been a place of protection, 
but in your presence, under your very wings, that I desire to remain there. David says, number two, we survive stress when we remain in God's presence. We survive stress when we remain in God's presence. It is just the a habitual, daily time alone with God where you try to get quiet enough where you move into the very shelter of God's wings, the very presence of God. And there dwelling on him, you find that warm bed of asphalt, that place of refuge. Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course, tells the story of Ernest, young boy who uh, grew up around the legend of the great stone face. And uh, it was a legend that one day a leader would emerge who would, um, uh, you know, bear the likeness of the great stone face, this profile that was left carved by nature, a wind and erosion over time, in a profile of a human face that just, uh, just reflected a countenance of incredible character and strength in nobility and goodness. And the legend was that a leader would one day emerge bearing the likeness of the great stone face and be a great leader among the people. And, and Ernest, as a young boy, was just enamored with the legend and enamored with the great stone face. In fact, he, he made it his habit oftentimes just to come out into the field and he would sit back and just look up at the great stone face and reflect on it. Meanwhile, three different men over time visited the community. One was a soldier uh, who had a lot of strength, not a lot of relationship compassion. Uh, there was a poet who really uh, tickled the ears of everybody, but no real substance. And there was a politician who uh, came. Lots of ideas, but kind of just would, would change views and somewhat uh, manipulative and his relational style. And each one of them disappointed people. But uh, Ernest continued to uh, sit out in the field, reflect on the great stone face. It had become his habit that at sometimes the people in the community would come out into the field and, and uh, 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 Ernest would kind of deliver a little homilies, keeping the legend alive in front of the people and reflecting on the, 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 all that could be seen in the great stone face. And one day as he was talking and he paused for effect and looked out in the distance and as the sun was setting on the great stone face just behind him, one of the people in the crowd said, look, Ernest himself is the likeness of the great stone face. You see, when we're captivated by the rock, we end up taking on the character of the rock. And that imitation is important, but my, my bigger point with that is the impact of daily feasting in God's presence on who he is. Just taking time in God's word. It's like those rough rocks that fall down and land in the stream of water. And the water over time just begins to smooth away the rough edges of that rock. And then when you reach in one day and you pull out that river rock, it's smooth to the touch. And you see, it is your daily habit 
of remaining in the presence of God that does that, that smooths us. Elsewhere, David would pray, Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze into the beauty of the Lord. Don't you love that? Isaiah, some 300 years later, would say, uh, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. A.W. Tozer says this. Uh, by the way, as a retired pastor, I just want you to know this is a quote that I kept in front of me on my desk through my entire ministry. He says, whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy however harmless it may appear to be, whatever engages my attention when I should be meditating on God and things eternal does injury to my soul. Let the cares of life crowd out the scriptures from my mind, and I have suffered loss where I can least afford it. Let me accept anything else instead of the scriptures, and I have been cheated and robbed to my eternal confusion. If relying on the power of God is tested by your prayer life, remaining in the presence of God is tested by your time in his word. The time just reading and studying at God's word. I have a friend who says, the real goal of Bible study and Bible reading is to gather material for hero worship. Don't you like that? That we're so enamored with Jesus. We're so enamored with him, our rock. So enamored with him in whose presence we seek. That's what, that's what time, that's what remaining in the presence of God is. Okay, let's look at the last part of this psalm. Because David, having been comforted, having remembered his past and kind of relayed this prayer, his longing, we read then in verse uh, uh, five. He says, For you, O God, have heard my vows. Uh, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, in public worship in the Old Testament, they would often uh, make vows of commitment, public expression of their commitment. This could be in any kind of form where David basically just says, my vow is to, uh, to lead well. My, my, my vow is to take serious the fact of this heritage, of responsibility, the stewardship for the people of God, those who fear the name of God. He says that's, that's his vow. And then watch what happens. Verse 6, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Do you see it? Do you see how he changes all of a sudden from first person to third person? It's been, hear my cry, listen to my prayer, for you have been my refuge. I long to dwell. And then all of a sudden, he moves to this third person. I'm so intrigued by that. What do you think is going on? I mean, it's like he's quoting. In fact, I would suggest to you that David is quoting. He's alluding to a promise that God had made to him 
You find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise with David, actually a covenant with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. It was a promise that God had made to David when David had voiced uh, to God through the prophet Nathan that he wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build a permanent home for the Lord. They were still in the tent of meeting at at that time. And uh, uh, God comes back and tells David, I love it that you want to build a house, but it won't be you. It'll be your son. And instead, he says, I want to build your house. And he kind of does a word play because house could be a physical structure, but it could also be a people, a legacy. Like they would say how uh, Rachel and Leah built the house of Israel, or the sons of Israel. Uh, the house could be a dynasty, something that would continue on. And what David is promised by God in the Davidic covenant is that he would continue on his throne and the Davidic throne would continue onward. Uh, that he would have sons that would uh, continue on the throne, the Davidic throne. Uh, and, and David uh, is blown away by this covenant, by this promise. And he takes encouragement from it. In fact, he uh, quotes from uh, uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel about uh, God's loving kindness, that God would make this happen according to his loving kindness. And here David reflects on that. He says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure all generations. This is what God promised David. May he be enthroned forever. That looks beyond David, doesn't it? Uh, Be enthroned forever, but it looks to the Davidic covenant, which many of you know was ultimately fulfilled with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, who ultimately fulfills this. And when he, especially when he returns to reign. But David finds great encouragement by reflecting on the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to him, appoint steadfast love, faithfulness to watch over him. Uh, this leads to, I think, the third big takeaway today is that the way we survive stress is to rest on God's promises. The way we survive stress is to rest, to reflect to believe, to embrace the promises of God. That's what he does here. That helps him survive the steamroller. One of my favorite Peanuts cartoons uh, pictures uh, Linus and Lucy. Uh, They're uh, looking uh, out the window, and it's pouring down rain. And uh, uh, Lucy (laughs) says to Linus, she says, boy, Look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And he says, sound theology has a way of doing it. You see, when you're under stress and you think the steamroller is about to squeeze the life out of you, you've got to remember sound theology. You've got to remember the promises of God. Uh, Some of you know the name Dawson Trotman. He's the founder of a ministry called The Navigators. 
ministry that uh, began in uh, military uh, bases and uh, uh, spread to universities and uh, adult ministry as well. Uh, many of you I know in this room have, have been impacted from the Navigator's ministry. Their big distinction was that of discipleship, of, of you know, spending one-on-one time helping another believer come to Christ and uh, learn how to walk with God and how to pass on their faith to another. It's discipleship, multiplication. Their big uh, phrase was to know Christ and to make Christ known. And so when Dawson Trotman penned a little pamphlet called The Need of the Hour, uh, you would pick it up and you would think, well, certainly what he's going to say is the need of the hour is for men and women to disciple other men and women in the faith and help reproduce disciples. Like, certainly that's the need of the hour. And if you've ever read the pamphlet, you, you would read these words. He says, the need of the hour is an army of people dedicated to Christ that believe he is God and that he can fulfill every promise he ever made. Isn't that amazing? There have been five promises. That have been my foundation. Through the stress of grad school, through the stress of uh, colon cancer, uh, one surgery, cancer comes back, a second surgery, chemo, all kinds of stuff, which, by the way, I, my, my, I'm completely clean of cancer right now. Praise God for that. But there was a two-, three-, four-year period of time. And I can tell you that over 24 years, I'll never forget that morning that quiet time, when God opened up this song to me. And I said then, oh God, I have got to rely on your power, not my own. I want to remain in your presence. I want this progression of intimacy with you. And God, I want to learn to rely, to rest on your promises. Five promises First one is, uh, I forget what order I put them in. First would be uh, God's provision. Uh, I'll, I'll just quickly remind you, you know, Matthew 6. Jesus says, hey, listen, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, and, and uh, don't worry about what you're going to dress. Uh, a, a word that had a range of meaning that uh, could be dress or shelter. He says, don't worry about these basic needs. And God knows that you have them. Seek first. His kingdom and his righteousness, these things will be added to you. What, a, what, what an incredible promise. Uh, a second one, as you see here, is God's protection. Uh, God says, uh, listen, uh, Hebrews 13, he says, why, why would you fear what man can do to you? He says, have I not promised that I will never leave you or forsake you? See, it's a really promise of God's presence, but we think about it about protection, about what it is that we might fear what man might do, what your boss might do, what your teacher might do, what your coach might do, uh, what your uh, competitors might do. God says, listen, I've said I'll never leave you. Why would you fear what God, man can do to you? Do you hear Jesus there in the boat? 
in this storm? Oh, you need a little bit. A God makes a promise of provision. He makes a promise of protection, a promise of power. I can do all things in Christ. He strengthens me. Uh, God's Spirit enables us. It's by God's Spirit that he empowers us both to obey him and to serve him. What a promise. When you feel weak, when you feel inadequate, when you feel like, oh, God, you know, this small group that's about to come over to my house, they're looking for me to lead this huddle. They're looking for me to, to, uh, uh, to lead this company. God says, look, I will empower you to serve me and to reflect and represent me. Finally, the peace of God. Uh, God promises. He says, don't be anxious for anything, but with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I know that we know that verse. Most of us in here have probably memorized it. But do you cling to it? Do you believe it? You say, God, I know that peace is not based on my circumstances being perfect. It's not the absence of the steamroller. It's the warm bed of asphalt. And the peace of God he provides. And finally, the providence of God. This is a little bit perhaps more complicated, but God basically says, I'm always up to something good in your life. No matter what may be going on, God's up to something good, to his glory and our good. That's why Paul would say, hey, uh, you know, that God's able to make everything, cause everything to be for good, for those who love him, called according to his purposes. And I believe that. I believe that. And when I'm faced under the steamroller, I say, God, this is no surprise. You're up to something good. Something for your glory and my good. Uh, we had one of my granddaughters over not long ago, a couple of nights ago. Little Ophelia, uh, five years old, right? Five. It's always good to have your wife as your fact checker. Checker. <laughs> Ophelia was over and uh, uh, we had put her to bed. And uh, sometime later, uh, uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, Kathy went in to check on her, and she was still awake. And she, uh, Kathy snuck in there, but her eyes were open. And I wonder what she'd been thinking for 45 minutes. You know, when you're in a, you know, not your normal place where you fall asleep. And Kathy said, Ophelia, are you still awake? And she Kathy said, Ophelia, would you like me to lie down here with you? Oh, Lolly, would you? And Lolly lays down with her, and Ophelia kind of nestles under the wings, if you will. And very quickly, she was fast asleep. And God says, there's a warm, soft bed of asphalt that will protect you. It's the secret for surviving stress. In the words of the old hymn writer, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide 
myself in you. Oh, Father, we are so amazed at you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we think about this promise made to David that ultimately had you in mind. That Lord Jesus, as the son of God, the son of David, the son of man, that you ultimately are our refuge. And in you, we find refuge from the penalty of sin because you died to pay for our sin. In you, we find refuge from the power of sin for you've broken sin in our lives so that we can live for you. We find refuge from the very presence of sin in your presence, Lord. And yes, in you, we find refuge from the pressure of stress. And we worship you, Lord. I pray for anyone who has not taken that first step of refuge to ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior, believing, Jesus, that you died to pay the penalty for our sin, that they would make that step in the quietness of their own heart and ask Christ to come into their life. And Lord, for all of us, that we would continue to let the steamroller drive us into intimate presence with you and reliance on you and rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.